Good morning, beloved of the Lord. Thank you for uh, allowing me to return today and look forward to this time of worship with you. Uh, before we read the scriptures, uh, I want to remind you that uh, in the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, we hold strongly to the doctrine of the infallibility and inerrancy of scripture because each word is inspired, the very breath of God, and is profitable. And so the scriptures are um, without error and absolutely true. We don't hold that to be true for church bulletins. And your church bulletin this morning uh, is erroneous because of who supplied the information. Um, I was working on a sermon to preach in Athens and I got my date switched and uh, I didn't figure it out till Thursday or Friday that I had sent uh, the information for Athens here. So we're not in Matthew, and the audiovisual man may relax. He won't have to put anything up because um, none of the information is correct. So, <laughs> it probably won't be my only mistake this morning, but we'll start with that one. If you have your Bibles, I would invite you to go with me to Zechariah. Oh, I can feel the excitement already. If you don't know where Zechariah is, go to Matthew and back up two books, Malachi and Zechariah. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, we call them the post-exilic prophets. That is, they ministered to God's people following the 70-year captivity in Babylon. It was a hard, hard time. And... When I was with you in August or September, I'm sure you recall, um, we dealt with the first seven verses, or the first six verses of chapter one. And so I invite you to look with me. We're going to begin at Zechariah 1, verse 7, and read through verse 17. Give ear to the living, infallible, and errant word of God. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shebat. In the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen or ravine, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who was talking with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring lines shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, or the Lord Almighty, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Our Father, the flower fades, the grass withers. The word of the Lord, that stands forever. We pray that as we have been privileged to read and to listen to this reading of your most perfect word, that the Holy Spirit who guided the hand of Zechariah to write it would be present this morning to give us a profitable and correct and useful understanding. We pray that we might not be hearers only, but doers of the word as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What a bunch of losers. Now, when I preached this sermon in a chapel at WCA, they sort of assumed that they were, but you might have taken offense. But I really think that that would make a great subtitle for the minor prophet Zechariah. He found himself preaching to a sorry group of losers. At least they thought they were. If I may share words from Richard Phillips' commentary, Zechariah presents a people whose record has been disgraced by sin and whose covenant with God's law was broken. But people who long to start over with God and a generation that wonders if the flame of bygone years can be relit find a message in Zechariah particularly suited to their needs. The reality is that God always uses failure to do his work. It is his gracious delight to call, atone, restore, and equip weak and sinful losers to bring glory to himself. The hero of the book of Zechariah is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have it together, if on Communion Sunday you don't have anything to say during those quiet moments of preparation because you don't have any sin, well, then you probably will find it difficult to relate to this passage and to this sermon. But if that quiet time before communion is never quite long enough because you haven't even gotten through confessing your sins of omission, let alone starting the list of commissions, 
if you feel like you've been a loser, then this sermon is going to be very good news. Our God is in the restoration business, not the junkyard business. Our God is in the restoration business, not the junkyard business. Is it safe to assume you maybe don't remember the sermon in August? So let me just quickly recap. Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. That's a built-in key to the theme of the whole book. Names were very important in the Old Testament. Zechariah's name means Jehovah remembers. And 95% of the time in the Old Testament, when you see the verb remember, it's an action verb. When God remembers, you look in the next line or the next verse and he does something. God remembered Noah in the ark. In the next verse, he sent a mighty wind. God remembered Hannah. And in the next verse, he enables her to conceive. When the thief on the cross confessed his sins and asked Jesus to remember him, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. When God remembers, he acts. Zachariah's name means Jehovah remembers. His daddy, Berechiah, means, means Jehovah blesses. And his grandpa, Ido, Ido's name means in his good time. And you put those three generations, they're a priestly family, they're an Aaronic Levitical priestly family, and you put those three generations together and you come up with Jehovah takes deliberate steps to bless in his good time. And that's what Zechariah is commissioned to preach to these losers who have been in the proverbial woodshed for the past 70 years. If you're too young to understand what the woodshed is, just ask Papa or, or Mima and they'll explain it to you and may even demonstrate it for you. Um, but the Jews, and rightfully so, have been disciplined at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians for 70 years. And they have just now returned, returned in 536, Cyrus the Great sent them home and, and picked up the check. And initially they were excited and they were full of anticipation to rebuild the holy city, to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, but it didn't last long for they ran into severe opposition by the, what we would call the squatters who have moved in the past 70 years and taken possession of the land. And so for about 15 years, nothing was done. The walls of Jerusalem were left in shambles. The temple was in total disarray. And then God raises up 
a tag team, Haggai and Zechariah. They're six months apart in their ministries. They're prophets of encouragement. To some 50,000 Jewish exiles who have returned home and who feel like losers. Have we broken the covenant one too many times that even God cannot find it within his self to forgive? Those questions of self-doubt, of self-accusation were a part of the spiritual and mental framework of Zachariah's congregation. They were downtrodden. They were discouraged. They were depressed. And so God is going to bring in one night a series of eight visions. When we think of visions, I think maybe the Christmas carol, Scrooge, come to mind. Well, these visions are revelations to be given to this group of losers to encourage them to take up the task once again of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple and expecting that God is going to remember to bless them at this time. The key phrase in the first seven verses, if you'll return to me, I will return to you, declares El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. The time in the woodshed is over. You are my covenant people. Though you be unfaithful, I will remain faithful. The promises I made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I fully intend to be faithful to. And it is at this time I intend to visit you, not with continued discipline, but with blessing. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first of these visions, which we read just a few moments ago. Three points, an anguished plea in verses 7 through 12, God's comforting reply in verses 14 to 17, and then the theme of the vision, God is with us. Look at the vision again. It's the 24th day of the 11th month. It's, it's late February uh, in uh, 520 BC. It's about this time of year. And the Lord appears to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Dido, and he sees in this night vision a man riding on a red horse followed by multiple warriors on brown and white and red horses. They are in a deep ravine, golly. And they are in the midst of myrtle trees. Every commentator that I read are in agreement that these myrtle trees in a ravine are a picture 
of Israel in its current state. The myrtle tree is a very small evergreen. It never gets more than eight feet tall, native to Israel. It has small white blossoms, which are aromaless. Is that a word? It will be today. They are without odor until you rub them between your fingers, and then they emit a very beautiful aroma. These little myrtle trees, not, not the mighty oaks, not the mighty cedars of Lebanon. Israel felt like these unimpressive, small in stature myrtle trees down in the shadows of a ravine, in the shadows of God's displeasure. And they knew that he rightfully was displeased with them. They had worshipped the golden calf, they had worshipped Baal, they had worshipped Asherah, you name it, they'd worshipped it. God had every justification to send them to Babylon. The question was, was there any anger? Was there any end to his anger? Had they sinned once too often? Would God permanently dispose of them in the junkyard? these myrtle trees down in the ravine, then we find the angel of the Lord on a red horse. And he dispatches scouts, reconnaissance teams to go throughout and evaluate all the kingdoms of the earth. And they do so, and as an evasion, that doesn't take any real time, and And they've returned and they're ready to give their report of their surveillance, of their evaluation of the kingdom of the earth. And and the report is that all the kingdoms of the earth are at peace and prosperity. Let the good times roll. Where is Israel? They're down in the ravine. They're being harassed and intimidated and threatened by the sandballots and the Tobias that we read about in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're mocked and ridiculed as they attempt to rebuild Jerusalem. The response and, and, and the angel of the Lord that's mentioned there in verse 11, and they answered the angel of the Lord who is seated on the red horse in the midst of the myrtle trees. The first place the angel of the Lord appears is in Genesis 15. Hagar has been thrown out by her mistress, Sarah. There has been dissension in the household. Abram had erred greatly and using Hagar to fulfill a promise that God was quite capable of fulfilling without Hagar's help. The two women, Sarah and Hagar, had come to blows, and Sarah 
held the aces and Hagar was sent away. She's on the road to Egypt to go back to her people. She stops by a well. She's out of food. She's out of water. The angel of the Lord appears to Hagar and assures her that she will have a son and his name shall be Ishmael and he will be a mighty prince. And that Hagar ought to return and submit and behave herself in Abram's tent. Hagar names that well, Bir Roy, the Lord has seen me in my distress. Most theologians believe that that is a pre-incarnate visitation of the second person of the Trinity. The word angel simply means messenger, and Jesus Christ is the messenger of the covenant, the clearest, greatest communicator of the covenant of grace. One of his many legitimate titles is the angel of the Lord. Second place you find the angel is with Hannah in 1 Samuel. When the angel of the Lord assures that she shall have a son. The other instance is in Joshua. The night before the battle of Jericho, Joshua is doing Surveillance. He's by himself. He doesn't want to be discovered. It's dark. He is walking around the walls of Jerusalem. He is sketching on his notepad where it might, at this point, he assumed that he would launch a traditional military attack on this fortress. And so he's doing his homework as he ought. He's the leader of Israel's army. So he's gathering military intelligence. And suddenly there's a man standing in front of him who wasn't there a second ago and he's got a drawn sword. And Joshua says, are you friend or foe? And the man says, neither in the sense that you're thinking. Take off your shoes, Joshua. You're standing on holy ground. Well, where did we hear that before? Hmm. In this angel, the Lord delivers to Joshua the unorthodox strategy plan of the capture of Jericho, marching around once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day and blowing the trumpet and giving a great shout and the wall will come down. And Joshua says, surely I have been in the presence of the Lord. And so I think it is with historical verification that the angel of the Lord here in this vision of Zechariah 1 is none other than the king and the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. And when he hears that all the nations of the earth are at ease, but that his covenant people are in distress, are struggling for survival, and angers him. And so we have God's 
comforting response. Verse 13, And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So there's a lesser angel. There is the angel, the Lord, on the red horse. There's another angel who is guiding Zechariah all night through these eight visions. He's sort of the, the MC, if you will, who takes Zechariah from vision to vision to vision. So, uh, so the Lord, and when in your English Bibles you see Lord in all caps, you know that in Hebrew that's Yahweh. If it's small letters, then it's just a term of nobility, lords and ladies. But anytime in the Old Testament or New Testament, when you see Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, Jehovah. And so Jehovah answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous. God is in the restoration business, not the junkyard business. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Yes, I used Babylon as a means of discipline, but I didn't use Babylon because they were righteous and they were good and they were holy. And so their arrogance and flippancy and self-righteousness angers me. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Well, what's that got to do with Christians in 2024? Well, we are in the temple building business. I'm not talking about a stone and material building in Jerusalem. Know ye not that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you? Do you ever feel like a lousy loser in your Christian walk? Do you ever feel like your prayer life stinks? Are you overwhelmed with grief of the lack of gratitude that you have, 
that the Lord Christ died for you? Do you sometimes wonder if you're beyond God loving? These words from Zechariah are for the church of 2024 as much as they were for his original congregation. God is in the restoration business, not the junkyard business. Philippians 4, we read, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Earlier in Philippians, Paul wrote, I am sure of one thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. From the moment you were born again, the Holy Spirit has been committed to your rehabilitation, to your restoration, to your renewal, to make you in the image of his son. None of us if we're here, have arrived at perfect sanctification yet. And Satan, we're told in Revelation that day and night, Satan stands before God accusing the brethren. If we have enough future times, and I'm with you, we'll get to Zechariah 3 which is going to be my funeral sermon. I hate I'm going to miss it, but, um, but I've preached enough times. I know what Zechariah 3 is wonderful. Where God takes Joshua, the high priest, not the Joshua of Jericho, another Joshua. He's dressed in filthy garments representing Israel's sin and Satan is there to accuse him, to remind God why Israel should not be allowed into heaven. And Satan's got stacks and stacks and stacks of evidence. If I'm not careful, I'll preach the whole sermon. I won't be able to. No. The Lord told Satan to be quiet. Is this not a stick snatched from the fire? Yes, Satan, for once in your life, you actually didn't have to lie. They are guilty of all that. I know that. But I'm in the restoration business, not the junkyard business. I want us to look in, just for a moment to the 73rd Psalm. The psalmist in beautiful poetry describes this struggle that we often have, especially maybe on communion Sundays when we wonder if we are worthy to eat and drink 
the psalmist writes, Psalm 73, this is an absolute doctrinal declaration the psalmist says, I believe this. I affirm this. I avow this. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, oh yeah. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Amen. However, as for me, my feet almost stumbled my steps. Near, I almost slid on a banana peel. Why? For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They aren't in any kind of trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Uh, they've got a master card that solves all problems. They're the people on the front of People magazine. They're, they're beautiful. Life is good. And he goes on to describe that I daily go to the temple and, and I pray. And, and what good does it do? I feel like a loser. And then until you get over to verse 17, I was thinking, what good is it to be pure in heart and to seek after God when the world seems, as it was in Zechariah's day, to be at ease? Let the good times roll. But in verse 17, the psalmist says, until... I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. Oh, it is appointed unto man once to die. And after that, the judgment. All the good times you could possibly roll up into 70 years will be nothing when you hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. And so the psalmist concludes, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You're, you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom, I, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Eternal perspective. These days, at best, are short. There is a day appointed when each of us will die, and after that, the judgment. That will be a glad and glorious day for those who have thrown themselves on the mercy of the court. I have a pastor who, like that definition, a Christian is simply somebody who's decided to settle out of court. Because you knew if you waited until judgment day, you wouldn't win. That's Zechariah in these eight visions. He's encouraging the congregation of his day to settle out of court, to take God's gracious offer to restore 
rather than to send them to the junkyard. And all of it would be based on his provision of a perfect sacrifice, the Lord Almighty. Jehovah remembers to bless in his good time. And that truth is as valid in 2024 as it was in Zachariah's day. It is Jehovah's time to remember you. And in spite of your sin, in spite of the stack of exhibits that Satan has on his prosecution table, no. Shall we pray? Our Father, we are grateful this morning that our acceptance before you is not based on who we are, what we've done, achievements accomplished, even how many sins we've confessed, but it's all based on the substitutionary work of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is our hope and trust. Father, we thank you for these visions of Zechariah as we have opportunity to study them in the weeks ahead. We pray that we would be encouraged that you are even at work in us today and will until the day of Christ Jesus perfect your image. For that we give thanks in Jesus' name.